welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues, and communities. In this episode, I had the wonderful opportunity to chat with Mike Liamhaes, a man who's not uh, unfamiliar to our show, but I think you'd agree that in our first installment with Mike, just an absolute wealth of knowledge and so insightful and just wonderful to, to listen to his perspective. We just had to have him back. This episode is kindly brought to you by the great people at Pearl Valley Golf Estates at Valdivie. If you are looking for a premium golf experience, look no further than Pearl Valley Golf Estate. It is truly one of the absolute gems in South Africa and in the Western Cape. Highly recommend a visit to this wonderful estate and wonderful golf course for that matter uh, on your next trip to the Cape Winelands or into the Western Cape. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. It's been a little while since we, we had our last conversation and um, I was curious to know what has COVID been like for you, what you've been busy with. Give us the, the executive summary, if you would, of, of what you've been up to. Yeah, last year, you know, what could have been a really horrendous year was, uh, was actually probably one of the best years I've had. I mean, you know, again, um, you know, I have a very select clientele, but... And, and three of my clients are on a retained basis. And it could have been very easy to just walk away and say, hey, you know, we're not, you know, we're not, not going to stay with you or, you know, do something else. But all three of them stayed with me and have continued through this year and continue to go on, knock on wood, which, uh, which is great. But I think it goes back to your point. If you're delivering a service or you – you know, my clients know that, you know, if I get a text message, they get a response back immediately. Mm. Yeah. If they say, you know, when can we talk about X? The answer is now. You know, I make time for every one of them because I don't want them, you know, to wait a day or two days or I want them to know that I take this relationship as important as they do. You know, that's why they hire you. It's, it's instantaneous. To, in today's world, it's instantaneous feedback if they're calling you it's because they have an issue and they want an answer and time is money you know for all of them so yeah so anyway well that's good to hear that response time you speak about is interesting you know i think there are a lot of people in south africa who haven't quite grasped that whole immediacy uh as you so well put it you know there's today people want they, they we've become so primed to get things as we want it that i think that expectation has gone into business as well as you know that that thing of people responding in a day's time or whatever the case used to be just isn't good enough anymore. Well, and it's not, Rob. And I think the, the key is with the tools we have at our disposal. And again, they can be as uh, they can be detrimental, but obviously they, you know, they can be extremely helpful. I think today's expectation from clients is if somebody you know, my client in, in in the Bahamas, we opened up the marina this weekend. So I was over there and, you know, we, we're texting backwards and forwards. I mean, when they send a text, they want a response. I mean, and how tough is that to do? I mean, even just to say, 
hey, I'm busy with a client. I'll give you a call in 10 minutes or 15 minutes. It's just that you are recognizing that they're there. It's not this unanswered text message, WhatsApp message, email that just sits out there in the, you know, in the never, ne- Neverland. Yeah. Uh, so I think that changes. The downside of that, of course, is you never off, right? So, you know, 4th of July weekend and everybody's, you know, having a good time and, yeah, I'm I'm responding back to text messages and and stuff. It just it mm. just it's become a way of life that I think you're right. Some people adhere to. You know, they do it socially, which is interesting. Yeah, my WhatsApp blows up. You know, with all the social stuff from all the buddies sending jokes and sending you know all the other crap that goes on on that. So it's not like you you don't have time to do it. Yeah. You choose yeah. not to do it, exactly. right? Yeah. You know, but, you know Mike, anyway. it's, it's interesting. Hey, I've actually found that the clients that I've had the longest standing relationship with, they, they almost start to use discretion themselves in a way. And they know that when you're replying at a difficult hour, I mean, we've got two young kids now, four and two. Right. And uh, they kind of they, they almost <clears throat> empathize back with you to say, look, I know this is, you know, this is the worst time of the day for you. Give me a shot back in the morning. It's fine. Yeah. Whatever, you know. And it kind of that respect goes both ways. And I think that's, you know, you, you, you've got to earn that, but you know, it's nice to see it from the other side coming back to you. But you're so right, Rob. I think people, I know my guy will, will say something like the Bahamas guy will say something like, man, I know that you're busy or I know you told me you had a meeting or I know it's Sunday and you are spending time with the family, just, you know, when you can get back to me. And I think you're right. I think that comes from respect. It comes from them trusting you. And then also, there's part of it is, and I'm going to use the word friendship because that connotes something differently, but there's a relationship, a mutual respect that becomes part of, 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 of who, you, who you are. And, and I think they want to respect that as much as uh, you sometimes downplay the family stuff, but they become more conscious of it uh, because they do know. Yeah. You know, and you get to know their family and they get to know your family. So I actually think anyway. that's a great first lesson out of out of this chat is is that you don't have to have a friendship per se to have mutual respect or mutual understanding. You know, it's it's something that can be quite well developed or instilled in a professional sense. Uh, and it just makes the dynamics so much more progressive, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh and I think that you know this this piece of business that's been very lucrative for me in the Bahamas. It came because <clears throat> this gentleman's father, I think I might have told you, is uh, is an Auschwitz survivor. And when we first met, I was representing somebody else who really didn't get back to this guy. I mean, they, they paid lip service but never got back to any of the questions. So I played the intermediate role and then we got to become, you know, acquainted, and I was very interested in his father's story. And it, it, in no ways, was it about trying to get the business. It was just I was genuinely interested in what what his family background was. And the dad had written a book. He sent me the book, and then the next time he said, "You know, why do I even need this group that uh, that you're representing? Why can't I just do business with you?" Mm. And the answer was, well, you could, but I never really thought about it. Mm. And that started, uh, you know, a two-plus-year relationship, and it's 
Yeah, it just shows you, I think if you lead with that authentic kind of willingness to just be there, add value, listen, uh, it's it's amazing how few people actually follow that sort of uh, approach. Um, and it's it just shows you what dividends it pays. But I, I'm trying to think back now into the, um, t- the last time we chatted. And if I'm correct, I think it was pretty much slap bang in the middle of COVID or yeah. pretty much the beginning, uh, you know, uh, timeline of COVID. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, compared to where you were then to where you are now, what's changed? What's different? What's the same? Uh, you know, do you feel any different? Do you feel like you've, you've changed as a person or is, is it pretty much just carry on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've, you know, I've always worked for somebody. So being a, an entrepreneur has been a, a learning curve for me. Um, having to make decisions that impact me and my family um, directly as opposed to indirectly through working for somebody else uh, has been an interesting journey for me. Um, You know, being a one-man show, um, just my wife and I, um, I've had the opportunity where um, I could have grown this business quite substantially, but it would mean taking on additional people and, and and getting to a place where at my stage in my career, I just didn't want to go. Mm. So I had to, had to make this like you were talking about going digitally. I had to make a decision. You know, I'm busier now than I've ever been in my career. Uh, the nice thing is I'm doing it from home and I get to choose who I work with. So there's a lot of stuff that comes my way now that I get to actually pass on to other people within the industry that I have relationships with. Um, I do a lot of work with GGA Partners, Global Golf Advisors, the partners uh, out of Toronto, Canada. I do a lot of work with them. Uh, They are very involved in my project. They did a a strategic plan. They did a financial analysis. They're heading up our IT. Uh, I work with a local architect here. He's probably the top architect in private clubs. Um, so that, you know, again, has been great because I've passed stuff to him. He's passed stuff to me. Uh, we've done some stuff jointly, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, you learn because you, you forced to learn. I, you know, there was a lot of things that I had to learn how to do that I didn't know before. Um, and saying no is one of the big things, right? So when you first start, you think, well, I got to have as much as possible. And then as time goes on, you realize that, you know, you want to be able to give your clients what you promised them. So my Bahamas guy, you know, pays me substantially and he knows that two thirds of my time is dedicated to him and his project. Mm -hmm. So when he calls to our earlier conversation, he says, you know, when would be a good time to chat? My answer is now. N-O-W, whatever I'm doing now, if I'm having dinner with my family, I'll get up and walk outside and see what it is. So, um, yeah, and I think, you know, we sold a a, a apartment that we were in. We bought a bigger house. Um, We're closer to the beach. You know, so there's been a lot of little changes, but in in your life at this stage, they're kind of quite big stages, Mm -hmm. you know, moving into a new house and it's still in the same area. Um, now we're starting traveling again, you know, so I was at the ladies open in San Francisco. I was in the men's open in San Diego. 
head back to LA. My client is in Los Angeles at Riviera Country Club, so I'm headed back there. Um, yeah, so staying busy. And uh, but other than that, I mean, things are you know things are about the same. I mean, mm. it's uh, it's just good. It's, it sounds like a pretty good itinerary for a, for a period of lockdown. And, and what's so interesting to, to hear is, and even in, in the sort of, I suppose, back nine of your, your career is the fact that you continue as, as you alluded to, to be on a growth curve, which is, you know, you, the fact that you're not sitting still, you're not um, idle. You've had to acquire new skills as you put it, being an entrepreneur. And, and I find that interesting because so many people, uh, in, in the latter part of their professional career are sort of winding down when it comes to the growth, the growth cycle or the growth curve, as it were. And I find that interesting. Do you, do you feel that that's just part of your personality or is that something which, you know, you've kind of had to force yourself to, to do? Well, you know, I think part of it is being an immigrant. You know, I think you, you probably have a lot of friends who've immigrated or, you know, people who've immigrated you know, even though I married an American woman, which made life a little easier than if I was married to a South African and we picked up roots and went to a different country, right? But you still find that, you know, when you get here, people don't quite understand, you know, where you come from. You know, this is, think about this, this is going back to the mid 80s, you know? It's, uh, you know, I went for four or five years where I couldn't get a job, and I might have shared that with you. Yes. It's difficult, you know, as an immigrant. So I think what that instilled in me is a, and it's it's a fear of failure, I think is what it is. For me, um, I don't want to ever be in that situation again that I was in where I couldn't find a job, I couldn't find work, I was you know, relegated after, you know, running Ellis Park and, you know, being a teacher at King Edwards, relegated to pouring concrete and, uh, you know, and digging ditches and trenches and doing stuff, menial work. And I'm not saying, you know, everybody has different aspirations. I was happy for what I did, but I think it's that fear that I have that, you know, everything could change and you could go back to that at any time. Mm. So I think... That's one thing. And then I think the other thing is if you're lucky enough to genuinely find something that you absolutely love doing, then I think it's it's really not that difficult, right? I mean, you, you want to continue to get better. You know, it's, a, a, it's really not the grind. I mean, one of the things I'm struggling with at the moment is my youngest son is just struggling to find who he is and what he wants to do with his life and great athlete um you know his situation hasn't changed in a year and a half i mean he's he's involved in different career choices or different jobs that really don't satisfy him and the more i talk to him the less i feel like i'm getting through so i've kind of had to back off this a little bit um, but it's really difficult because here's somebody who was a great baseball player, you know, really did well. I, I, I he was the, went to a private school was the one that I was thinking the least that I would have to worry about. And he's the one that now is, you know, dating a South African girl. Um, you know, they've been living together for three years. They want to get married. 
And he's reluctant because he just doesn't have that career piece fulfilled. So I think when you when you find what you really love doing and then you find that you're fairly good at it, I mm. think that makes a big difference, right? And I think that, you know, combination of those two, I honestly don't feel when I come into the office, I don't feel like I'm working. I mean, what else would I be doing uh, other than I don't have the social life that you guys have. So I miss that. You know, I miss all my friends in Johannesburg, Cape Town. Uh, you know, there's a hearse that you have in South Africa going out and the brides and, and, and we don't have that. As an immigrant, you just don't have that. So you, you, I miss that, but I don't, I'm not distracted by any of that. Right. So, yeah. You know, it's 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 a, it's a yeah, it's a very interesting, and I, I think you'd find that for most people who have uh, you know who've immigrated. Sure. Anyway. Yeah, Mike, it's 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 fascinating the the journey that your your son is on at the moment, and it kind of leads me into one of the first questions that I I wanted to pose to you because the more that 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 our company works with you know different organizations, the more I find that. The, the younger guys, especially those that are put into kind of early managerial roles, are, are on this journey of trying to understand what management and leadership is all about. And I think someone like yourself who has, you know, you've got an illustrious uh, career in terms of the places that you've you've had be, had custodianship over. And, and I think I, I asked the question in the preamble to, to you about what you would tell yourself as a, as a young manager starting again. But but if I had to ask you that question in terms of, I guess, what what is it that, especially when when a when a young person is starting out and especially being put into a managerial role, what do you think are some of the sort of the key boxes to tick in terms of setting a a, a foundation where where people kind of want to follow you rather than you know you taking sort of positional equity? Because I think in, in listening to many of your interviews in the past, you've You've created a culture in your in your clubs and the places that you've worked at where people have really been empowered. They've really felt like they could, you know, run towards responsibility rather than be fearful of it, et cetera, et cetera. Could could you speak to that in terms of young managers and some advice towards them? Yeah, you know, I read through your questions and I made a few notes uh, last night, and, and I'm just thinking through, you know, it, it's first of all, it's identifying you know, which of these young people uh, really you believe uh, could step up and, you know, and take that role, right? So there's a difference between doing, managing, and leading. So you need need to understand that difference. And at some point, somebody will take a chance on you. It's going to say to you, hey, uh, I want you to be a manager, and, you know, a manager is different than a leader, right? A manage, management is different to leadership. So in, in that, somebody's got to trust you enough to be able to want to give you that opportunity. So that's where I tell, and, and again, I use my kids as an example and, and, and young people that I've worked with, it's how, how much do you want something? You know, do you get to work first? you leave work last. If something needs to be done and it's not the most glamorous thing, 
Who's the first person to put up their hands? It's funny. It's always the same people, right? It's it's always the same people. The same ones that come in early, the same ones that leave late, or the same ones that put up, put their hands up. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out which are the ones that want more responsibility and who want to take on. And you you see this in high school. You see this in when you pick your rugby teams. You know, as a phys ed teacher and a rugby coach at King Edwards, you can very quickly see who's stepping up. There's a lot of talent, but and you know, the most talented person is not always the captain of a of a of a of a team. But you kind of figure that out. So once you've identified who those people are, you've really got to give them the opportunity. And part of that opportunity is knowing that they're going to make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. So you and the first point I wrote down was mentoring. You know, you have a responsibility as a leader when you give somebody that opportunity that you have to step in and act as the mentor. Now, there's two sides to that, right? So there's the side where a young person like yourself or my son sees somebody who is in a leadership role and says, hey, I'd like that person to be my mentor. And you then go through a negotiation or you go through a relationship where that person in a, in a leadership role agrees to be your mentor. So there's that. The other side of that coin is the responsibility from somebody who, who is seen to be a mentor by everybody. When you identify a young person who you think can take on more and take on a future leadership role, you have to, they may not know to come to you and ask to be a mentor. Mm. You've got to take that responsibility of saying, hey, I've put them into this position. I want them to be successful. So therefore, I have to invest time, effort, money into them, right? So there's the two sides of mentoring. Mm. So that was the, the first one. The second note I made to myself was just, again, we talked about this, is education. And again, education doesn't have to be a university degree. It doesn't have to, you know, be book learning. It, it's a want and a desire, uh, a strong desire to want to be better than what you are today. What is it that, what do you, what do you, where do you see yourself in three months, six months, nine months, 12 months? And this is a conversation I have with my kids. You know, give you a quick example. You know, one of the things here that's a big deal that where you can sort of kind of get into and start making money fairly quickly is in real estate, right? So it doesn't take, the barrier to entry is not that very high. Mm. It's a certification, right? So you go in, you get certified, you do your real estate license. Well, now you can hang your shingle and now you can do business. Now it's about your personality, your contacts, how many open houses you do, how many letters you send out, et cetera, et cetera. So education is not just, it's not just a degree. It's what are you prepared to do to enhance the position you're in? Again, we talked about this. How many arrows do you have in your quiver? What are those arrows? How significant are those arrows? Certification is critical. So once you decide on a field, then how do you become the most certified in that field, whether it's club management, whether it's golf professional, whether it's real estate, whether it's being a lawyer, I don't care what it is, what is it that you're going to do to, you know, to stay certified? So there again, the leader has got to, the mentor, the leader has got to 
be encouraging people to do this. You know, have you thought about a certification? Have you thought about doing your CCM, Certified Club Manager? Have you, even though you have a PGA certification, have you thought about a teaching certification? All the things that, you know, you already know. And then I think the final note I made to myself was just what associations are out there that you can join that give you the, um, <clears throat> that give you the, networking that is so important in your industry. There are other kids out there, there are other young people out there that are going through exactly what you are going through. So you don't have to go through this on your own. You know, you can network and I see this on Facebook all the time. I see young people reach out to me. I see young people reach out to other young people. I see them join groups. I see them, all the digital stuff that you're talking about not dissimilar to what you're doing now, the service you're providing for young people. Uh, there's a group out of um, <clears throat> out of the UK that I met at a PGA show a while back. It's a company called Gather. Have you heard anything about them? A little In bit. In fact, I just, I just got an email popped up on my screen now from Gather. <laughs> and it, it's, it's all about pulling people in the industry, finding mentors, people who've got experience in a certain you know field, and other young people people who want to learn more and they, they have a really nice format. They basically have four people who basically get to spend time with the senior leader and it's for an hour and a half and they advertise who this person is and whoever the first three or four that apply get the position and you get this kind of one-on-one -on -one time with, uh, you know, with them. So it's interesting, as we were talking, an email from them popped up on my screen, but that's the, you know, that's the other thing is what's out there that you can join or be a part of that is that allows you to understand that you're not on this journey alone. You're not the only one out there trying to do what you're doing. There's thousands of people out there doing it. What are they doing that you could learn from? What are the things that they see? What are they doing with their people that allow you? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, you don't need to get knocked down 15 times. You know, back in my day, there were, was no option. I mean, we didn't have what you have today. You took the hard knock, you went down, you got up and you kind of moved on to the next thing. Yeah. But saying that, you know, I look back and I think back to my time at Sun City, you know, I had a guy called John Small, an American guy who came out, was running the main hotel at Sun City. And we kind of developed a relationship. He's probably 15 years older than me. And we still have a relationship today. And the relationship was one where, you know, we ran together. We, we did things together. We, our kids were about the same age. He was a, a late starter with his kids. But he was the one who kind of brought me in and taught me about food and beverage. And, you know, I think back, if I, if I never had that opportunity, if I never had somebody like that take an interest and want to give me more responsibility, who knows where my career might have gone? It certainly yeah. wouldn't have gone where it is, where it did go. So I sure. think those, Rob, were the three things. Again, mentoring, education and certification, and then joining an association is what I would say to myself at a very young age. Make sure you, you get mm. the, you find that right mentor. Make sure you get the right education and then join you know, my life changed when I joined CMAA and when I, you know, joined the PJ. Mm. It changed. My life changed when I got that. 
my master's degree. You know, it just it's it's amazing how yeah. that happens. So. You strike me as someone who gets it's stimulated by the right type of network, and I think there's such value as you've alluded to in 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 being or getting into those networks because the learning there is you, you can't really even quantify. You know, as you've so eloquently put it. I want to I want to unpack something quite specific, and I think going into the club industry, one of the challenges that young managers tend to face, and and you may have faced it in your formative years, is you know a lot of members of clubs these days, and I, I speak very generally now, but a lot of the members are, are are quite entitled, and they, you know, they they do ask a lot of managers and and guys in the club environment. Some some of them are really relatively amicable, others are are quite sort of to the point and direct. And for an inexperienced club manager or a young guy coming up the ranks, sometimes they just don't know how to handle that kind of adversity, especially kind of in the space that we find ourselves at the moment where, you know, people, people's patience are on an knife edge. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening to individuals, whether it be at home or at work, et cetera. And, and I was wondering if I could pick your brain on that because, you know, I think there's a, there's a wrong way and a right way to deal with adversity um, what was your kind of approach as you grew up? I mean, you would have been thrown many curveballs as you alluded to earlier, but you know, what was your approach to dealing with, with the things that didn't quite go your way and, and, and kind of trying, 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 trying to get back on the horse again, as it was. You know, I think, uh, you actually being kind, I think at, at times it can be very confrontational. Um, certainly my experience, um, you know, I think, when I think back on this, and it's it's kind of, you know, as as a leader of an organization, you want to make sure that the people that work with you understand, you know, what what can and cannot be done within the environment that you're in, right? So, all clubs, all organizations have guiding principles, have a set of rules, have a set of norms that people are expected to behave within. Uh, at Congressional, it was called a constitution, it was bylaws, it was house rules. You really didn't have to, you didn't have to invent stuff, right? It was there, it was written down. So the first thing is that I think it's imperative that all managers understand the rules that govern the society that you work in, right? So. Generally, these 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 flare-ups or these um, you know situations that arise arise because normally it's the member who doesn't understand or hasn't been given the correct or has been given the correct documentation, but maybe it hasn't been explained in the right way. It's compounded when. It's compounded when the staff member or the manager doesn't know the details, right? So it's critical that the manager, that they understand that. So what I'm saying to you is that one of the prerequisites for being a manager in a place that I've worked at is you need to understand the constitution, the bylaws and the house rules, because you will be challenged daily on whether something's right or wrong, whether hats should be worn in the club, you know, how you speak to other members, how you speak to staff, how you drive your golf car, you know, the clothing that you wear, you know, it's, it's all, I'll give you a great example. Um, Cause again, I think you learn from, you mm -hmm. learn from examples. 
So everybody's heard of Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball, greatest probably athlete of all time, right? So he comes to the club. He wants to play. Uh, he comes in with a member who's part of his management group. It's right at the time that he bought that he was playing for the Washington uh, basketball team. Um, so he comes in. He's inappropriately dressed to play. He's got a pair of cargo shorts on. Well, you know, it's Michael Jordan. I mean, come on. It's Michael Jordan. I mean, give me a break. Can you not just let Michael Jordan go out and play golf? In, who, who cares? It's, you know, it's Michael Jordan. But no, it's not. It's a rule that we had that was in place. So I get a call from the director of golf. He calls me up. He says, listen, I just want you to know this is the situation and this is how I'm going to handle it. And he did an outstanding job. He knew the rule. It didn't matter whether it was Michael Jordan, the president of the United States, or a member who was bringing a guest in. He was going to handle it the same way. And the way he handled it was he went up to Michael, said to Michael, I'm sorry, you can't wear those shorts. They're not legal to play. By the way, here's a pair of shorts. I know I've checked online what your size is. Here's a pair of shorts. Come and choose. If this is not what you like, choose whatever you want in the shop. Here's a key for a locker room in our locker room. Please just change the pants. We'll make this as smooth as possible. That's amazing. So handled correctly, mm -hmm. called me to let me know what was going on. I came down, situation was resolved amicably. Mm -hmm. Now, had that not been handled in that, in that same way, we would have got countless calls from members who would have known that Michael was out there, would have seen him playing, they would have seen that he had the incorrect uniform, and we would have come under criticism that there was double standards, mm -hmm. that we were treating VIPs differently than we were treating the members and their guests. So that's one example. Another Michael example would be he wanted to be a member of the club at Congressional, but we had a five-year wait list. He didn't want to be on a five-year wait list. And again, you know, his management, we had conversations um, and it, at the end, it just didn't work out because, you know, everybody is treated equally, mm. irrespective of who you are. If you're number 25 on the wait list or you're number 100 on the wait list, that's what your number is. You mm. can't change the rules for everybody. So I think you have to, you, you have to, to stick to the integrity of the of, of the club and the institution that you work for. You have to be blatantly honest uh, to a point. You don't have to be rude, but you have to be able to reference something like the house rules stipulate that you have to, or the golf rules stipulate that you have to have shorts that are, are you know, knee length, no cargo pockets, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to have something to fall on. And when you fall on that, then suddenly they don't have any leg to stand mm. on. What happens then, Rob, is sometimes you, 90% of the people say, totally understand, I got it. You're doing your job, get it, and they move on. But you do have the 10% that fight it. Mm. And generally, you know, they're obnoxious, they've had alcohols, there's something else going on. And, they, and all you have to do is you have to stand your ground you have to say, I'm doing this because it protects the entire membership. It's not about you. It's about the entire membership. And I, I don't care who would be standing in front of me. Classic, another classic example. Um, give you this example. 
So the chairman of a club or the captain or whatever you call it in South Africa, the president, whatever, mm. uh, is late signing up for a member guest. And he misses the window to sign up for a member guest. And he says to you, hey, hey, Rob, damn, I forgot to sign up. You know, can you get me in? What's the answer? The answer is no. Mm. And the answer is no, because I'm protecting you. If the membership found out that you forgot and that I put you in, it's going to come back not only to haunt me, but it's going to come back to haunt you. And when you have that conversation, it's it's suddenly a different conversation, right? So I think those are the things. The other thing I wrote down when I read your question is – is the importance of communication. And we've talked a little bit about this in our previous conversation. You know, um, communicate, communicate, communicate. When you think you've communicated enough, communicate. I don't believe it with a, in a membership or in, a, in an environment, you could ever communicate enough. I just mm-hmm. don't believe. I, I, I just don't believe. There, there's so many forms of communication you have to communicate to the point of over-communicating. And some say that's kind of covering your, you know, your, your backside. I think the more you communicate, the more chance you have of it, come, of it going in. You know, sure. it's, you have to constantly, you know, let people know. You have to communicate with them. You have to set the expectations. Um, you know, um, I told you we had a hurricane at Ocean Reef. Mm. And, you know, we were communicating with everybody morning, noon, and night. I mean, and at the end of that, and with the staff, your question was about committees and and membership and staff. We were communicating with them, and their lesson learned at the end of the 100 days of going through this, uh, you know, this tragedy, tragedy, the lesson learned from both staff and members alike was that we just didn't realize how important communicating with us was. Mm. We had never, at no stage during these uncertain, tumultuous times, did we ever think that you guys didn't have your finger on the pulse. And I think that lesson, even though I'm not managing now during COVID, every manager I've spoken to, the lesson has been communicate, communicate, communicate. So I think that would be the other, you know, the other. Michael. I wanted to go back just quickly to your director of golf at Congressional. I'm 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 absolutely amazed by how he handled that situation. And the reason why I wanted to ask you about him is, you know, I think he he innately understood the need to to have consistency in the rule, but he also understood what Michael was actually also needing, which was that that sense of significance that made him not feel you know, stupid or not valued as the player that he is, the person that he is. And by by offering that, you know, the fact that he went to go and research the the waist size and the pants and things like that, he, he brilliantly showed that significance to Michael. So my question is this, is that just the person that he always was? Is that something that you kind of try to instill in him as, as his leader? Or was it a bit of a combination of, of both with, with that particular individual? So this guy's been a very close friend for a number of years. I took him from Congressional with me to Ocean Reef. And then when I left Ocean Reef, I moved, helped move him on to uh, to one of the, probably one of the largest golf positions in the world at Desert Mountain, oh. a guy called John Lieberger, super, super nice guy. Um, 
You know, I think in our industry, we're in the service business, right? First of all, and being in the service business, we always want to look at alternatives. What, what are the alternatives? It's not just saying no. Um, as we all know, recovery is 90% or 100% of solving a problem, right? How do you recover? How do you, you're going to make mistakes. Things are going to happen. Things are not going to go the way you want them to go. How do you recover is critically important. So John always knew, and I, and I think for most managers, you know, the, the, the senior leadership have to know that you've got their back, have to know that he was making the right decision and he was giving the person alternatives. What are the alternatives? The alternative was that Michael didn't choose to take the pair of pants that John offered. So there's more to the story, yeah. but he chose not to do that. But he, 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 made, an, he made a decision that got us all to a place where we all felt very comfortable. Mm. You know, he put on a pair of rain pants okay. over the cargo pants, yeah. which uh, be, and again, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, um, you know, he's such a, obviously such a strong Nike guy. Um, you know, that, that was part of the, part of his, uh, part of his deal. But John knew when he made that decision, that not only was he making the decision, but I had his back, the board had his back, the membership had his back. So I think, uh, I don't want to say it was an easy decision because having that conversation is never easy. I, mm. I don't care who you're talking to. It's not easy to go up and let somebody know that what they're doing is not how we do things at a certain place. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think, Mike, you kind of answered it brilliantly there in the sense that the, the battle was almost won or lost before the conversation started in the sense that, you know, John obviously felt a certain degree of support. He he knew that he could he could make a, a decision to a point, albeit that he also let you know at the same time, but that that he almost, he, he felt like he was entitled to add value and to, to provide alternatives, et cetera, rather than be fearful of a potential outcome. And, and I think that's just nailed it on the head for me as to, I think what a lot of young managers struggle with is perhaps they, they don't have the environment to operate in where they feel that sense of, I guess, support, trust, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I guess, you know, it, it goes both ways. You, you show your, you show your merit and you show your potential and therefore people kind of trust in you as, as a youngster as well. But, but I just love that story because it just shows what is possible you know, even in in the in the midst of someone like Mike, Michael Jordan, who, you know, would would intimidate most people, where where this guy obviously felt entitled to add value. Yeah, I don't care who you are. I mean, it's intimidating for me to go in and have that conversation with somebody. You know, even though you get to see them all the time. I mean, you know, and there's been there's been a number of conversations like that uh, where you where you where you have to make some decisions, but at the end of the day as long as you know you're making the right decision, meaning as long as you're following the guidelines, uh, that's key, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Just got a text from Ernie. He uh, he played so well this weekend. I thought he was going to win. Oh, yeah, that third round, I think he was seven under or something like that. It was, a oh, it was unbelievable. Played, he played like the Ernie of old, and then, mm. you know, sadly, the last round was not like, not I like that. I see he's uh, he's second on the Charles Schwab though, so I think it's uh, he's he's not doing too badly. 
No, he, and in fact, this win would have moved him up. He's not far behind. I mean, yeah. and, and the good thing about him is consistently in the top 10, which is nice. Yeah, I want to get to your, actually, I want to get to your second question, because that's the one that really got me excited. Because um, yeah. I'm kind of out on the fringes on this one. And, mm. and it's, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I've had this conversation with a number of people, but I wonder if you and I have talked well, about this. Mike, you know, you kind of started to answer the question in a, in a, in a way when you, when you spoke about your previous answer um, around this concept of, of, I guess, what we like to call progressive accountability, where you said you spoke about the Constitution and you, you're speaking about kind of setting your stall out before the fact, you know, in your previous answer. And I, I wanted to pick your brain on this because... You know, performance management is often a, a characteristic thing. You know, in many in many companies and many organisations, where you you kind of given some kind of incentive, or there's you know someone who's who's sort of beating down your door to make sure you're doing it. I wanted to know what your what your approach has been in your career when it comes to performance management and how you've kind of have have you taken a very consistent approach? Have you changed your approach depending on who you're speaking to and the, and the type of person that that is. I'm just curious to know how you've gone about this process of of essentially managing performance of of many many different types of people in many different environments. So, Rob, I think it's evolutionary. I, I think uh, you know when I think about you know um, you know my first real responsibility in a in a senior leadership role of any significance. You know, let's say it's some city. Um, you know, oftentimes you tied into the institution, right? So the institution has a system in place that is a way of rewarding somebody. And that reward comes, it's very stringently laid out through, you know, human resource documents and other stuff as to how one gets rewarded, whether it's a bonus at the end, whether it's 10%, 30%, 75%, it could be stock options, it could be all of these different things, right? Cool. Um, so I think it becomes evolutionary because you go through these different stages with different organizations and every, every one of them is a little different. There's slightly different nuances. But the one thing that I think I philosophically believe in, and that is I have just seen too much this concept that you, that, that, that you mentioned in here this, whether it's an employee performance system or whether there's an appraisal process uh, where at some point in time, in any given uh, year period, suddenly there's, you have to sit down and write the performance appraisal, mm. right? You're familiar with mm. that concept. And there's a six-month performance appraisal. There's a 12-month performance appraisal. Sometimes there's only one appraisal. Sometimes that appraisal comes where there's a merit increase, you know, of 3% or 4% or 5%, and or it comes at the same time when, it, when bonuses are due. And there's all these different varieties that come into play. And at any given moment, <clears throat> the halo effect plays into it, right? So... Now, you know, you know, every July you have to sit down and do a, form, a performance appraisal. And, okay, the July appraisal is a merit increase because your budget starts in October or whatever. Mm. And then at the end of the year, your end of your financial year, maybe that's when you do your bonus evaluation. 
Every company is different. They all do it differently. The one thing that I hate about that is that, that there is this pressure for managers, leadership, boards, to sit down and at a given point in time, do an evaluation of you know, six months to a year over one conversation. And I absolutely detest that. I think it's so disingenuous. I think it's so misleading. It is such a, and yet, if you did a, if you did a snap analysis on this, I would guarantee 95% or more of big businesses do this kind of evaluation of employees. Mm. And I totally disagree with it. I, and the reason I disagree with it, because I know that most managers, I believe, let me say this. I believe that most management is by constant daily hourly interaction with your leadership group and a conscious effort to make notes on the good, the bad, the indifferent as it's happening in real time. So that's why it's critical that everybody carries a pad or a, or a notebook or a pencil or paper on them at all time. You know, they say great leaders are great note takers. I think they are because they're able to react to good ideas that come up, make a note of it, or an interaction with somebody, whether it be above or below, that has some significance. That then goes into a tickler file, and that then goes into when you have your meeting, because you're not going to have a performance evaluation every month. You're going to have it probably every every three to six months, but that's when these things pulled out and they all dated. And that's when you can give concrete evidence of, I like when you did this, I like when you did this. Oh, by the way, remember when this happened, here's maybe a better way of doing it than you did it there. It's not just all lumped together and because he's in a, in a good place with you or her, she's in a good place with you right now, that the halo effect takes over and suddenly everything is, is a, there's a second part to that point, too, and that is that a lot of managers don't like, um, don't like confrontation. And part of that is the easy way out is, well, I don't, it's sort of like, let me give you an example of a merit increase. You know, it's not unusual to have a merit increase in the U.S. of annually of around 3, three to 5%. My point is... And I've seen this happen so often. Managers go in there and they give everybody 3% mm. in their department. Well, no, that's, that's not right. Not everybody in your department is, is not everybody deserves a merit increase of 3%. This is not a cost of living increase. This is a merit increase. So on the merit increase, you've got people that probably are doing, should get a 6% increase. And honestly, if somebody isn't doing the basics and shouldn't be getting 3%, they should get nothing. You shouldn't give somebody 1% or 2%. Mm. It's basically saying you're rewarding them for not performing to the level you want them to perform at. So that's where I believe, you know, I'd love to see people getting 5 6%. And then those that aren't performing need to realize that to perform, they've got to do X, Y, or Z and then they will get rewarded. And at the moment, they're not gonna get an increase because 
they're not performing at the standard that you need them to perform. Mm. So I think there's a part of uh, part of managers that don't like that confrontation. The problem with that is that when you don't confront those things face on, they compound. And they compound to a point where you eventually have to do what nobody likes to do, and that is separate. And that's even more confrontational than having a conversation about how performance is going and setting realistic expectations for everybody. I believe everybody can do what needs to be done. It's just a change of attitude. It's a, a redirection. I mean, some people you're never going to get you know, on board, but mm. I believe most people you can get to where you need to be, but it, it takes commitment and it takes you confronting people with the, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Yeah, Mike, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you said that and the guy's giving everyone the same kind of uh, merit increase, it's often the fact that that the manager knows or the leader knows that they haven't actually done the hard yards and therefore can't justify, don't really know who deserves better or worse, you know, and, and I see that happening quite often when the guys are, you know, it comes to that time. They don't have the, as you said, they don't have the data, the, the factual data to justify a you know, uh, someone who's an outlier or someone who hasn't done what they're supposed to because they just they don't really know. Over why is that wrong? Ask yourself the question, why is that? They just haven't, I don't think they've been hands-on enough. They haven't really been, you know, at the cold face of the experience. Uh, so they don't know is the, is, the, is the honest truth, I think. You're absolutely 100% right. I couldn't have said it better. You know, you have to inspect what you expect. You have to be... You physically have to, you have to be part of that journey with them. And that's why being a manager, being a leader is difficult. It takes more time. You know, you're not working a 40-hour week. You're not coming in, doing your job and leaving. You're coming in and doing more. That's why you get paid a salary, not an hourly rate. You know, that's what comes with all of that, the responsibility. You, you have to have that hands-on approach and you have to hold everybody accountable. And the only way you hold them accountable is if you're watching what, what they're doing, if you if you constantly are interacting with them. I yeah. mean, you know, weekly meetings, daily meetings, uh, you know, there's only, in a big organization, there's only so much you can do, but that's another great management and leadership lesson is managing or leading by walking around. You know, when you walk around to your point about developing solid relationships with, with members, committees, management, is visibility. Mm. Yeah, members want to see you. Members want to see you around. They want to interact with you. It's like the maitre d' or the chef at a great restaurant. When the chef comes out, everybody's hoping he's coming to the to their table, right? So there's that that thinking. Everybody wants to see the person. And it's not just the person in charge of the club or the company. It goes all the way down. When a food and beverage manager is visible in a room, the member wants to introduce that person to his or her guests, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think there's, and that way you, on the cutting edge, you get to see what's happening. You get to experience it. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's really important. Yeah, Mike, you know, I think in my, my relatively short experience, you, you find that, that misconception often starts when there's a lack of communication. And misconception is what leads to assumptions Put wrong assumptions about things. And you you had such a great point there when you said, you know, especially the, the managers need to be present so that there aren't those misconceptions, you know, that there aren't those assumptions that, that take place about what they're doing or the value that they're adding in the club, et cetera. And I think it's 
it's one of the things I've noticed that the, the really progressive managers in, in this country are so present. They're so, you know, they're there, that people can see them. They're, they're engaging. They're not, you know, also it, it, get, it helps them to know what the truth is rather than them assuming, if that makes well, look sense. Look in South Africa, you know, one of the greatest managers uh, that, that I respect tremendously and I think I learned from is Jeff Claus. You know, if you look at Jeff, Jeff is hands-on. You know, Jeff is involved in the Claus Burger, in the Santa Burger. I mean, yeah. he's involved in, you know, playing with the early morning group. He's involved in getting people started. He's, he's intimately involved in every single aspect of his organization. So nobody's going to be able to pull the wool over his eyes. He's very involved in that. Yeah. And I think that's that hands-on, lead-by-example uh, you know, right there, and, and there's many in South Africa, there's so many really good managers there, but, you know, Jeff kind of jumps to mind uh, just because, you know, he and I sort of talk fairly regularly, but, mm. and I watch on Facebook, I watch what he's doing. I mean, he's always posting motivational things. He's always doing stuff that kind of take you to another level. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And it's something that I think is learned. I think it's something that, you um, you know, I see here in this country and that, you know, part of my responsibility now is executive search. So I, um, um, you know, I get to hire, help hire a lot of leaders. Hmm. Um, part of that is people spend their life working to get the opportunity to run an organization and then follow all the right trigger points to get to that. And then when they get to that leadership role, they spend their time in the office. So they divert away yeah. from what made them successful and think now that I've made it, I now can kind of, you know, I, I can now, I, I just don't get that because that's what ends up getting people fired because there's no visibility from the membership, no visibility from the board, no visibility from the committees, no visibility from the staff. You know, I hear stories about the, you know, new hire, new general manager hire. He's at a club for four months. Members have never seen him and staff have never met him. How is that possible? How can you think you're going to be successful if you don't get out to meet every single person that's there? You know? Couldn't so, agree more. Couldn't agree more, Mike. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm wary of time and I've got one more question to, to ask just that connects to what you're talking about recruitment there. Uh, as someone who's been involved uh, quite acutely with recruitment, I'm, I'm fascinated to know, you know, when you, I, I'm, I don't know if it's whether you look at a CV or whether you have an engagement with someone, but but what for you is that one thing, if, it, if it's possible to ring fence it as one thing that you're always looking out for uh, when it comes to just knowing that that's the right person, if, if we're taking a sort of a GM or a, a senior role, what's that one thing that for you is just a non-negotiable? Um, you know, I don't think it's non, it's not, it's, I'd, ra I'd rather look at it a little differently than something that somebody has to have. Mm -hmm. You know, again, when you, when I look at resumes, I look at a number of different things. I want to look at, um, so in my industry, now I'm not hiring doctors, dentists, lawyers, rocket scientists, I'm, I'm hiring, you know, club management leaders. So I'm looking at the university they went to. And this is in no order of 
of importance. They, these are all interchangeably important. I'm looking at what kind of education have they got. I'm looking at what certification have they got. What have they done past, I would say universities in, in some ways is compulsory, right? I mean, you know, you have to do it. You have to get through it. What have you done since the, the, the what you've had to do? What have you done past that? Uh, so that shows drive, determination. It shows uh, a will and a desire to want to better yourself. What have you done past that? What are the what are the positions you've taken? Where have you worked? You know, so that to me is important. I mean, I I've I've said this to my kids. I, you know, when I first started in the U.S., I would have worked at a, a world class club for nothing. I don't know how I would have done it. I I don't know how I would have lived. But I offered, uh, you know, the general manager of the L.A. Country Club. One time I said, just give me the job and I'll I'll work for nothing. Now, that's not realistic, but I wanted them to know that's how badly I wanted to work. So putting the right clubs, putting the right places on your resume are critically important. That's something that I immediately cast my eyes to. Mm. If these are clubs that I, if I'm hiring, which I'm doing right now for Riviera Country Club, I'm looking for people that have had experience at similar type clubs. Right. Sure. So, so that that's critically important. Where where have where have you worked? And then the fourth thing is, where else are you involved in? What, what what are the other things you do? Are you involved with your church? Are you involved politically? Are you involved with other you know not for profit organizations, Kiwanis, Rotary, all of the other things? What are the other things that you put down on there? And then the final thing: what else have you done personally? to set yourself apart from others. Mm -hmm. So you know my story. I'm not going to go through that again. But, you know, if you've played Springbok rugby or if you've played Transvaal cricket or if you've run Comrades Marathon a few times or if you've, um, you know, done a doozy or if you mm – -hmm. something like that tells me that you're curious, you have an interest in something else, you have a life outside of work – and you have a threshold for pain, meaning threshold for pain. Every one of those examples I've given you mean you've got you've had to be outside of your comfort zone, right? You have to have sacrificed, and that's what I'm really looking for. Is what is what are you prepared to sacrifice to achieve something to be able to to uh, to make your life meaningful? Mm -hmm. So when you weave all of those five things together. You know, some resumes have all of them. Some resumes have some of them. Some resumes have none. So when it gets to sifting through 100 resumes to get to 10, I don't find that very difficult to do. I, I can very quickly get to, to where I want to be. The challenge you have with that is that not everything is told on a resume, Yeah, on a CV. Not everything. I had an instance... Uh, about two months ago, I was interviewing somebody and in the conversation, just having a conversation, asking some questions, three things came up in the conversation that were absolutely pertinent to this job that I was doing the search for. And none of those three things were on his resume. Hmm. So a resume is a guide to get you to a point 
but it's not a substitute for having an in-depth conversation with somebody uh, about the position. And it doesn't have to be a formal interview. Mm. You know, I like to, if, if I get down to from 100 to 25, I like to have a conversation with somebody. It could be short. It could be you can get a lot done in 15 minutes. Sure. And it also tell you how that person reacts in a, in a, in a, in a setting, a conversational style setting, you know? Mm. Yeah. Mike, that's a that's a, a very fascinating answer. I think that holistic view on it gives you the best chance of finding the right, um, yeah, finding the best candidate. And, and there's only so much you can know before the fact in terms of when they actually get started into that culture and sort of get going. But um, Mike, I just wanted to again say thanks so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. And I think these answers and this conversation has been a great follow-on from our first conversation. And being able to pick your brain on a few, I think, very relevant and very challenging things, whether it's a young manager or, or, or someone kind of going up the ranks in, in their club or in their company. So, yeah, greatly appreciated. And I hope you enjoyed it. And, yeah, looking hey, forward Rob, to it. Hey, Rob, I do. I always enjoy talking to you. And uh, I appreciate you reaching out. And let's not wait so long. Let's do it again in a, in a couple of months. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.